We've been talking about Pentecost. We are in the period between Easter and Pentecost. We are in between the Jewish festivals of Pesach or Passover and Shavuot or weeks. And we're in that period, what they, what they call, the Jews call the counting of the Omer, which to them is a preparation. A preparation for what? Well, Pesach, Passover, is the feast that celebrates the exodus, the physical deliverance from Egypt. But the people realized that that wasn't the end of the story. That physical liberation is just the beginning. It's the spiritual liberation that completes the story. To be fully free as a people. Shavuot, 49 days plus one. So it's seven weeks of seven plus a day. Is the commemoration of the giving of the law. And at the giving of the law, the people finally galvanized. At the beginning of the law, they had moved away from the culture and the obsessions of Egypt to become their own people, to become completely free, to become a statement, a theocracy under God. And so this is their idea. Now, in Christian terms, between Easter and Pentecost, and Pentecost is just a Greek word that means 50th, so it's the 50th day after Easter Sunday is the day, if you remember in Acts 2, where all the disciples were gathered again in in that same room that they enjoyed the Last Supper with Jesus. Now at the Feast of Shavuot, and the room is suddenly filled with a roaring wind, and tongues as of fire appear over each person's head. And from that moment on, they were filled with the Spirit in a way that they'd never been filled with before. Acts records that they spoke in tongues that people were amazed by because they were hearing them in their own language, even though these were just men, poor fishermen from Galilee, you know, poor working men from Galilee. And so from that point on, they were able to move out into the Roman world and preach and do things that they couldn't do before. Even after all those years with Jesus, to be physically accepted into Jesus' community was their physical liberation. But it wasn't until Pentecost that they experienced their spiritual liberation. And they were able to move in the kind of freedom and boldness and power that Jesus had moved in and told them that they could do as well once they had experienced what he had experienced. And so for us, what is Pentecost? What does it mean now? Pentecost is often equated with baptism of the Spirit. It's equated with being born again. Jesus talks about the fact that we need to be born of flesh and then born of spirit, born of water and born of spirit. And so these distinctions are part of the tradition, part of the teaching that Jesus is trying to get across. How does that work today? What does it mean today for us to be born again, filled with the Spirit, have our Pentecost moment? Many charismatic Christians believe that any type of infilling of the Spirit, as we're talking about, is going to be accompanied by spiritual gifts, tongues being the the chief one among them. In fact, some more Pentecostal groups believe that tongues is the proof of having been born in the Spirit. So we need to start to define a little bit more what do we mean by this Pentecost moment? What is it that we are preparing for? What is it that we should be looking for? Because if we're not clear, we can get moved in all sorts of directions. I remember when I first landed in an evangelical church in my early 30s, I had been raised Catholic, 
And uh, so I didn't know about a lot of the things that they were trying, trying to get a hold of me and, and, and get me to uh, understand. Because they would always come up and say, are you born in the Spirit, brother? Born again? Are you baptized in the Spirit? And I'd say, sure, yeah, I think so. What is that? Um, you know, I didn't know what they were talking about. And then they would say, okay, well, then we've got to pray for you. And they'd sit me down, and they'd lay on hands, and they'd pray. And they'd all be praying in tongues over me. And, of course, I knew what that was, but... I didn't have a clue what they were after. And then after the, each prayer session, you know, did you feel anything? Did anything happen? Well, no. And I just felt like such a big disappointment. You know, and, and I couldn't pray in tongues. And it was a lot of pressure. And I remember thinking, what is this? And I'd ask the question, you want me to be baptized in the Spirit, but what is it? What does it mean? And I could never get a straight answer from anybody about what it really meant. And I get it now, why it was so difficult to get a straight answer to a question like that. Because it isn't really a straightforward answer in an intellectual or cognitive way as I was looking for it. There is an experience, there is a conviction, there is something that happens. But it is hard to express. And of course, they were trying to bestow it on me, which was the biggest mistake. And this is something that I think we need to make a distinction about Pentecost. The way Acts 2 reads, the way Jesus reads, and when he says, it's your advantage that I go away physically so that the helper can come. I will send the helper to you. And then in, in Acts, you know, the, the, the spirit falls like these tongues of fire. And it seems like it's just bestowed upon us if what? You know, if we're good enough Christians, if we say the right combination of prayers. You know, it gets a little confusing here. But what we know about God is that God never changes, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is constant. God is everywhere. There's no place we can go that God hasn't already preceded us. And so it's not as if the Spirit is being withheld from us and at some point is going to be showered upon us. The Spirit is always here, is always now, is permeating this room completely and fully in every place in the, in, in the entire universe. There is no place that is not being permeated by God's Spirit. So what is the Pentecost moment? The Pentecost moment is when we break through to the awareness of that permeation. That's what I believe. That's what I have experienced in my life. And I know that there's lots of different ways of looking at this and people get really emotionally attached. You know, It's not so much that, that I want to try to steer you away from any belief system that you have, but at least consider that there is the, an onus on us to meet God where God already is. Rather than trying to pray for an outpouring as if there is a lack thereof, it, it changes everything in the way that you approach life in general, starting from a place of lack a place of nothingness, trying to acquire something, or that you realize, as Jesus said over and over again, everything the Father has is already yours. It's already, since the beginning of time, been poured out. Can you realize that? Can you accept that? Can you embrace that? And so this period of preparation for Pentecost is a period of more and more practice of awareness. That's what we're really after here. This is what Jesus was talking about. All of the Jewish traditional rituals and, and, and traditions around what they do through this 49 plus 1 day period is all about that, coming to more and more specific places of awareness. 
And so what happens in Pentecost, really, if you think about it, it's a return to unity. It's a return to oneness with God's Spirit that never left, but we did. If you think about the shape of a human life, and it's, it's exemplified in Genesis. Genesis is the, is the book that shows us this shape. We start, as Adam and Eve did, in complete oneness. Not even knowing you're naked, complete unself-awareness, complete unity and connection with all of the physical world. Walk in the cool of the evening with God's spirit. Everything is connected. Everything is one. And then there's a fall from that kind of connection. Fall with quotation marks. And I know how Genesis reads. I know how the, the story is told, that it was a sin. It was a, as a um, disobedience on the part of Adam and Eve. But when you think about it, what it is is the natural establishment of conscious awareness. What separates people from the animals is that we are consciously aware. We are self-aware. We have the ability to choose between good and evil. So the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is just that moment when we as a species, when we as individuals hit that place. Why is it that we have to have that knowledge as human beings? Because without that knowledge, we can't make a choice. And if we can't make a free choice, then we can never love because love is always defined as a free choice. If love is coerced in any way, it ceases to be love. It becomes something else. So if God created us in order to love as he loves, to mirror that, if we were created in God's image, then we were created with the ability to choose. And so that fall was a necessary part of our lives as a people and our lives as individuals. But then as soon as we have that ability to think of ourselves as something separate, to be able to choose between alternatives, now we can experience loneliness. Now we can experience a separation. Now we experience life as life is experienced by each one of us and always has been. How does it say, how is it put in Genesis? Yeah, now you're going to earn your bread by the sweat of your brow and you will bear your children in pain. That is the, the poetic, the symbolic way of saying all of this human condition that we are heir to is the price we pay for the self-awareness that gives us the choice, that gives us the actual ability to love as God loves. And then from there, you move from the individual awareness to the tribal consciousness. And so by the end of Genesis, we see the nation of Israel coalescing into the 12 tribes. We see them actually starting to have this group, this community consciousness. And so we see this thread winding through, you know, from complete oneness to a single consciousness or the egoic mind being established and then into a tribal consciousness. And so each one of us is going to follow that pattern just as it is stated in Genesis. Think about the child who is born. You know, in that first few years of life, the child doesn't know he or she is naked. The child feels completely one. The child can't even distinguish between him or herself and Parents, environment, other people, they're completely in that unit of oneness. But between seven and eight years old, that egoic mind gets established. Now they've got a voice in their heads, like we all do, talking to them, that they think is them, right? That voice is the byproduct of that egoic mind, of that self-awareness. And now they can experience that loneliness. They can experience that separation. But then they move into the family unit and then maybe into schools and then churches. And so that tribal 
consciousness sets in. But the problem with tribal awareness is, this is my tribe. That's your tribe. And so there's always an us versus them type of mentality in this tribal consciousness. Now, if you're thinking maybe along with me in terms of the stages of spiritual growth that some of you may be aware of. How many of you are aware of the stages of spiritual growth? Is that... No, just a couple here. You know, uh, Scott Peck, who wrote The Road Less Traveled, he came up with four of them. There were other formulations. But his four are really good, and they follow this perfectly. The first stage is identity with self. It's all about survival. All the motivation is about getting the needs met, getting the emotional programs for happiness met, right? The second stage, the awareness or the identity moves from self to the group. So in a church setting, this is where this is my church. This is what we believe. We are right. Everyone else is wrong. That idea of a tribal kind of consciousness. But something happens along the way that we have been calling in here the Calvary moment. There is a moment when there is a break that happens. There is a moment where we lose that security that we have so coveted. First stage, second stage. And there's a break there. It could be so many different things. It could be a series of things. But some type of loss, a death, loss of job, loss of income, uh, loss of community, it can be so many things that then kick us into stage three, which is a loss of identity. It's, it's that wilderness experience, like Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, where we are now kicked out of the nest, and we have a choice to make. Because we're in that confusion, that disturbance, that place where we don't know which end is up anymore. We can double down and go back to stage two or even to stage one. But if we persevere and we move through and we keep living as if the values, the ethics, the belief system that we had were true, we can break through to stage four, which is now a unitive consciousness. This is a borderless awareness. This is where we feel one with everyone and everything, where everything connects. If you think about what the spiritual journey is all about, if you think about what Jesus' way is all about, it really is a program for breaking down the egoic mind, breaking down that over-identification with self, that voice in your head, and then breaking down the over-identification with your tribe or your tribes. Because once you do that, those things are necessary in our growth, in our evolution, I guess, as people. But until those get broken down, we move into that stage three, that wilderness environment, we don't have a chance to break through and realize there is a much deeper identity than self or tribe. There is an identity with everything, ultimately with God's spirit, which is that logos, that first cause, that underlying reason from which everything comes. And so this is what the spiritual journey, this is what Jesus' message is all about, moving through all that. Uh, You know, okay, I'm throwing a bunch of words at it. What does it look like? What does it look like to move into this stage four? What does it look like to move into this unitive consciousness where we are identified with everyone and everything? Let's take a look at Jesus on the cross. All right? Luke 23 Starting at verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, this is Golgotha in Aramaic, the place called the skull, the hill, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
I went to King James there. They don't know what they're doing. Imagine that for just a second. How could he say that? Hanging on the cross with everything that we know about that journey to the cross, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the mocking, the abandonment, the betrayal, then to be nailed on that cross. And we sanitize it with a loincloth, but the Romans executed their criminals nude, hanging there in complete and utter shame, humiliation. As a Jew, to show skin was absolute abomination. To be hanging there in front of all of these people and still have the presence, have the connection to say, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. How does that even happen? Could you do that? I don't think I could do that. How do you do that? How do you get to the place where even under circumstances like that, he can still see the other as a part of himself? He can still see through their actions, their heinous actions toward him and others to just a person who wasn't ripe yet, a person who wasn't ready for prime time yet, someone who couldn't help what they were doing because they didn't know any better. They were still just following the programs of stage one and stage two. How do you get to that place? This is what we're after. This is what we're trying to figure out. So how did Jesus teach this? How did he express the way toward that kind of attitude toward life, that kind of expression of life? Let's take a look at Matthew 5. This is right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. At verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. Now, first of all, you can look throughout the entire Bible, all 66 books, and you'll never find this. Okay? It's not there. What he's referring to is the oral law, the teaching of the rabbis, who said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The people all understood this. The Pharisees were the main teachers of the people in the first century. And so these teachings carried a lot of weight. So he's saying, you've heard people say, you've heard your teachers, your rabbis tell you, your teachers tell you, Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is what he's trying to get across. The love that your Father has is indiscriminate. The love that your Father has is equally shed, equally poured. Everyone, all the time doesn't matter about your behavior. doesn't matter about your belief systems. Everybody gets God's love exactly the same. We don't respond to it exactly the same. It isn't, have, doesn't have the efficacy. There's a great word, huh? Efficacy on those who aren't responding the same. But the love is the same. And Jesus is trying to get this across. If you are going to love the way your father loves... You can't just love those who love you. You can't just love those in your tribe, the ones that you get, the ones that you understand. Enemy here is not what we think of enemy. Enemy is just someone that you don't understand. Enemy is someone you don't get. Enemy is that resident alien who has different customs than you do. They make smelly food. They do things that you don't understand and don't really appreciate. All right? It's that simple. They're not someone you have any affection for. Maybe you have an active dislike or disgust for. But what he's saying here, 
is if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not, do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect. There's a frightening statement, right? As your heavenly Father is perfect. So what is he saying? He's not saying perfection in the way that we think of things perfectionistically, never making a mistake. He's saying that we can be whole, we can be complete, we can be fulfilled, just as the Father is, in the moment that we can connect with someone who seems unconnectable to us. When we extend ourselves in that way, when we move in that way, this is what he's trying to get us to understand. He's trying to move the people from that rabbinical teaching, that tribal consciousness, love your neighbor, love those in your tribe, but hate all the rest, which can mean prefer less in that language as well. doesn't mean an act of malicious hate, but still you get the point. This is us, that's them. As soon as we make that us-them distinction, all sorts of atrocities are possible on those who are not us. And this is where Jesus is trying to move us, from a tribal consciousness to a unitive consciousness, to be perfect and whole and complete just as the Father is in that love that is indiscriminate. Why is this so critically important? Actually, Barron sent me a a blog post, and it was so good. I want to read a part of it because I think she really connects with what we're talking about right here. This is Christine Walter's painter. Like many of you, global events lately feel quite overwhelming at times, And I ponder and pray about my response. One thing I keep coming back to is a sense of deep certainty that the way of the monk and the path of the artist make a difference in the world. What distinguishes these two ways of being is that each are called to live deliberately on the edges of things, in active resistance to a world that places all its value on speed and productivity, that reduces people to producers and consumers, and reduces the earth to a commodity for our use. The longer I follow this path in my life, the more I consider hospitality to be one of the most essential of all the monk's wisdom. Does that surprise anybody? Hospitality, that word there? To practice actively welcoming in what is most strange or other in my world as the very place of divine encounter encounter is a holy challenge. Let me read that again because this is the key. What she's talking about is actively practicing welcoming in what is most strange and other in my world as the very place of divine encounter. Welcoming in that which seems strange. Welcoming in that which is actively other that you don't get that disturbs you, that offends you, actively welcoming it in, is a place of divine encounter and also this holy challenge. But in a world where otherness sparks so much fear and policies which further divide us, learning to embrace the gift of the stranger, the gift of the stranger, both within our own hearts as well as in the world, is a true balm. Isn't that defining our world right now? We are all about tribal rivalries, all about us and them. Man, just look at Facebook, look at social media, turn on the news, see what's going on. Everyone is fighting with everyone. Nobody is listening anymore. The churches are doing it, religions are doing it, political parties are doing it. 
you know, just social philosophers are doing it. Everybody is fighting. Everybody is staking out their tribe and pitting it against everywhere else. This is what we're trying to overcome. Jesus is trying to move us from this tribal way of thinking, this tribal identification, into something much deeper. This is what Jesus taught as well through his actions every day. Welcoming the outcast, the stranger, the foreigner, always breaking boundaries to witness to immense love over fear, making time for a deep listening rather than reacting to what we hear. What are the sacred invitations being whispered to us? In her book, Mystical Hope, Cynthia Bourgeau writes that mystical hope has something to do with presence, not a future good outcome. This is important. Not hope in a future outcome, but in mystical presence right now. The immediate experience of being met, held in communion by something intimately at hand. Allowing time to feel met by the divine and held in communion is a reminder for us as we return to the demands of our lives and seek to make wise and compassionate choices. It helps to nourish hope deep within us. It's a reminder that more than ever, we need people willing to pause and listen, to open their hearts to what is uncomfortable, and to hold space and intention until the new thing emerges. And she writes this wonderful sentence, I don't have the answers, but I do have ancient practices which help to sustain me when I would rather run away. I was looking for answers about Pentecost. What I needed was a practice, an ancient practice that survives in our tradition to this day that would take me the place that I needed to go without me understanding it even at the outset when I wanted to run away. Perhaps if we keep practicing together, we will hear whispers of a new beginning. Not specific answers, but there is a way forward that Jesus taught us that has been practiced by Christians for 2,000 years in one tradition or another. We need to pick those up. Practicing the welcoming of the other until it is no longer foreign, until it's no longer alien. To give those people, those places, those things, even if it's just an idea, a different idea or concept or belief, give them the time that they deserve. Sit with them. Be willing to be uncomfortable and disturbed for a while until they become. Hold on to the enemy until he or she becomes a friend. This is where Jesus is going with this. This is where the Father is. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And everything I do is the Father doing it through me. This is the way the Father loves. This is what he's trying to get across to us. This is the expansion of our tribe until our tribe encompasses all that there is. That's where Jesus is going. That is the Pentecost moment to begin to see yourself in a tribe of everything, a tribe of everyone. No more segregations, no more of these little groups pitting themselves against each other. And what is this going to look like in Jesus' life? Okay? I'm all about trying to get down to brass tacks, okay? It's great to talk about this in theory. What did it look like in Jesus' life? There are three stories back to back in Mark, right on the border between Mark 1 and Mark 2. So let's take a look at Mark 1, verse 40. These three stories are going to give 
the example of what it looks like for Jesus to do what he's talking about doing here. Because if he's not doing it and just teaching it, then we're off to the races, right? Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 1, verse 40. A leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Okay, miracle story. Doesn't necessarily connect with us, but here's the thing. Anyone who touched a leper, someone who was ritually unclean, became ritually unclean themselves. Jesus touches the leper before he heals him. He's breaking a ritual boundary here. That was a huge no-no in Jewish custom, in Jewish community. These lepers had to announce themselves, and people gave them a wide berth. They weren't even allowed within the gates of the city to get a skin disease of some sort, and it wasn't just Hansen's disease that they're talking about here, made you an outcast immediately by law means you couldn't be in community, you couldn't buy and sell, you were automatically out homeless someplace outside the city walls. If you were willing, and Jesus says in Aramaic, Saba'ana, you know, that Sebiana, that idea of God's will is not just a will as we understand it, but the desire, the pleasure, and the delight of God. Jesus says, yes, it's my pleasure. It is my delight to be participating in your healing. But even before he says that, he touches him before he's healed. He breaks that ritual boundary. He's not afraid of being contaminated, both ritually or physically. He touches him. He risks infection himself. He risks being ostracized because now he's ritually unclean. But he breaks that boundary. He moves to the other and touches him. Mark 2, verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer any room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof (laughs) above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Did you notice in that first line that Jesus is at home? Interesting, huh? Jesus had relocated to Capernaum from Nazareth at some time either before or after his wilderness experience. It's it's vague. We don't really know. Most scholars will say, at least conservative ones, that that being at home here was at Peter's house. But there's a growing band of scholars that say Jesus would have had his own house as well. It was the house where his mother lived. It's where his siblings lived and the, the connection from his family. So if Jesus is home, it makes a lot more sense when he says, sons, your, your sins are forgiven because you just dug a hole in my roof. I forgive you. It's okay. All right. I'll deal with it. Okay. But something else happens here. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, everyone freaks out because only God can forgive sins. But notice, Jesus uses the passive voice. He's recognizing something that has already happened. But in Jewish thinking, if you were forgiven the sins, the imbalance in your life, then you would be healed. In fact, the healing was the proof that you had been forgiven. Jesus acknowledges that he was forgiven before the man can walk. 
before he was healed. He calls him son, which was a term that meant you are of my tribe. You are of my house. I honor you in this way. This is what he called his closest friends. He calls this man he never met son and acknowledges his forgiven state because of the faith that he sees, the relationship he sees with the men who would go to these lengths to bring their friend before Jesus. See, he's breaking a theological boundary here. This is not the way the law read. This is not the way the theology worked in Judaism of the first century. He breaks that boundary as well. He's not afraid to do that. And then in Mark 2, verse 13, he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he, Levi, got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. Whose house? Levi's house. We don't get that here so much, but in Luke's version, he says, Levi threw him a big party. He was so excited. He could barely get around that table fast enough. He was a tax collector and a Jew, a collaborator with Rome. He was hated by the Jews. He was outcast himself. And Jesus says, follow me, just after looking at him. He didn't say, hey, if you give up being a tax collector, if you pay back everyone that you've stolen any money from and make amends, then come follow me. And Levi, Matthew, is, is just flipped out. So he throws him this big party. And Jesus goes to the party, goes to the home of a tax collector. Do you know what kind of scandal that was? To sit at a table to recline at a table, to eat with all these tax collectors and all these sinners was, again, to make yourself unclean. He was reclining at the table in Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following Jesus. Jesus breaks social boundaries as well. He's not afraid to do that. He breaks the ritual boundaries, he breaks the theological boundaries, and he breaks the social boundaries. Anything that separates him from another person, no matter who they are, no matter how wildly outside the law that they stand, outside the margins of society that they stand, it doesn't matter to Jesus. He will reach out and touch them through any boundary or barrier that exists. That's what it looks like to practice this unitive consciousness, to practice this stage four connection. This is what it looks like in his life. Jesus' tribe was everyone. It was everything. It didn't matter if you were a woman. He wasn't supposed to talk to women, not in public. He did it anyway. He wasn't supposed to talk to Samaritans, but he talks to a Samaritan woman, for crying out loud. He plays with children. They were just property. They meant nothing in that society. He goes out of his way to spend time with them. He talks to Romans. He heals a Roman servant. He has no boundaries in that respect. He is completely comfortable at one with anyone who will sit with him. Oh, hey, he got mad at the Pharisees, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Always in defense of the people who were being shelved off from the ability to do exactly what he was doing because the Pharisees stood in the way and were implacable. They would not allow him to start to bring that wall down. So yes, in defense, he did. 
But he would sit with a Pharisee just as soon as anybody else, or a Sadducee, or a Zealot, or an Essene, or anybody else in that society. That's how it looks in Jesus' life. How is it going to look in our life? How do we personalize this? How do we bring this home? Think of a person that really offends you. Got someone in mind? Think of a person who really annoys you. Maybe you know them. Maybe you're living with them. Maybe you're working with them. Maybe they're just a talking head on the news. It doesn't really matter. Think of a person who really gets you going, triggers everything that's in you, all those afflictive emotions. Think of a group that does the same thing. Think of a cause. Think of a political party. Think of another church or religion. Think of another nation. Anyone who's not in your tribe that really gets you going. What could you do to break the boundaries that you have set up between you and them? Because you've done it. You've got ritual, theological, and social boundaries between you and that other. Otherwise, you couldn't see them as other. How do you reach through those boundaries and touch that person? Touch that group. And if it's something that is morphous, like a political party that you can't deal with, talking heads on the TV, what do you do internally so that you're not offended anymore? How do you hold on? What if it's just a different concept, a different thought, a different personal or political or religious opinion, interpretation, that just sends every bell off, every warning light off in your system? Are you willing to sit with that long enough to just let all of that die down so that you're no longer offended anymore? It doesn't mean you're going to adopt it. It has nothing to do with it. But can you sit with it and be with it without all of that trigger going on? Can you sit with that enemy until he or she becomes a friend? Break down whatever it is you think you know about them and not be offended anymore. And maybe it's not going to be a lifelong relationship. Maybe you're not going to be picking out curtains with that person. But at least they don't offend you anymore. That's how it looks in our life. You know the people, groups, causes, and things that just push your buttons. You know where they are. How can you sit with them in a different way? How can you be as straight across the table with them as you are with those that you're comfortable with. How do we get to the place that we're comfortable with anyone? Whether we like them or not, we're just, it's okay. It doesn't trigger me anymore. Can we get to the place that we are truly unoffendable? How do you treat the enemy? You treat them like your friend. Whatever you would do to your friend, with your friend, for your friend, if the opportunity arises, you do for them. This is just golden rule stuff, reciprocity. This is so basic, but it's so difficult because we're not even sure that we are required to do that, that we're supposed to do that. Aren't we supposed to stand against evil? Well, you've made another boundary, haven't you? An ethical one or a moral one. Do you really understand the other person's point of view, why they do what they do, before you make those separations, before you put those walls up? Are you willing to start breaking through the ritual, theological, and social boundaries. Can you do that? If you think that the first step is to feel peaceful about all of this, to feel loving and affectionate about the enemy, 
No, not at all. It's fascinating that Jesus has two different words for love that he uses. When he talks about love of the neighbor, the word in Aramaic is rahem. That's the kind of love that just flows naturally out, pours out like the love of a mother for a child. But the word that he uses for love of enemy is hab. And actually the roots of hab point back to just the kindling of a fire, dry twigs and things that you spark and you tend and you get them glowing and smoking and then a flame appears and then you slowly add bigger and bigger fuel until that thing is a roaring bonfire. The other image is of a germinating seed, a dry husk of a thing, but in the soil with the right conditions, with the water, with the tending, that green thing pulls forth. He's saying with the words and what the words mean, the way that the love is arrived at. The love of the neighbor, the love of your tribe flows easily. The love of the enemy, the love of someone you don't get is going to have to be tended to. So don't worry about not feeling anything before you start. You won't. Just show up. Just keep showing up. It doesn't matter if you feel the feeling, feel any closeness to God, feel any, just keep showing up. And I'm going to embarrass my wife here for a sec, but not really. Yesterday she was in, actually it was Friday, she was in Bible study mode and she was reading, and she told me later, I didn't know what was going on, she was reading in Acts, she was reading about Paul, and she doesn't particularly like Paul. You know, he's kind of misogynist and he's kind of, you know, overly rule-oriented, you know. But she's reading Paul. She was sitting with the enemy, reading Acts, and she's reading about his shipwrecks and all the trials and everything he went through, and she was feeling nothing. She was just doing the do, but she sat there and she read through all of this. And then when she came to soak that night, we played Oceans, and the oceans connected to the sea and the shipwreck and Paul, and suddenly here was this flowing, this flowing of emotion and connection and feeling it didn't happen while she was reading the scripture, but sitting there with the scripture, sitting there with the enemy, with Paul, right? Something connected later on. This is the way it works. We show up to do something, and then stuff is happening. Foundation is being laid that we're not even aware of, and things will connect later on. We just need to live as if certain things are true. And then we will find out later that they are. If we follow Jesus' way, no matter how strange it seems, no matter how counterproductive, counterintuitive, just keep showing up. And then we will realize we have arrived someplace. This is exactly how it happened for me. I just purpose to be a contemplative. I purpose to understand this way of Jesus in the way that I was starting to realize who Jesus was in my studies. But it wasn't changing my feelings. I just kept showing up and showing up. And I was being moved in directions that I was completely unaware. I didn't know that things were changing. But what was happening is I was becoming more and more aware of moments along the way. I was seeing things that I didn't see before, making connections not during times of prayer, not when I was aware that I was doing something religious or doing something godly or sacred, but all those other times. It's so interesting how this works. The truth that you see comes from the sides as you continue just to move forward. And that's what I was experiencing more and more. 
And at the time, 30, 25 years ago, I was keeping a journal. And these journal entries were showing more and more of this awareness, more of this connection, more of me enlarging my tribe and becoming more and more comfortable with more and more people of all different stripes, losing the boundaries that I'd held so fast and so secure in terms of my need for security and a place to shelter. I wanted to close just by reading you one of these journal entries because I think it just exemplifies what we're talking about. This one's dated Friday, January 21st at 3.50 p.m. That would be 1993. I'm at an airport. Airports are a great place to see things. Well, maybe not so much anymore. Back in the day when you could just actually go and sit in the terminal. But I was waiting for a flight. And, and I saw this and I wrote this. Women and their men. I see them all the time. Airport terminals are a good place to watch. The roles, the emotions, the language is universal. I see a young couple from the moving sidewalk coming toward me hand in hand. One of them has just arrived. I can't tell which. The small case he carries is nondescript. They talk. She is smiling. Looks up at his eyes. Back forward again. Up. Back. So much is said with her eyes. I can only imagine. I watch him. He's talking, but looks forward. She alternately at him and back ahead. What I see in her eyes, he hasn't seen as long as I watch. They pass, and I watch their backs. I see her profile lifted up to his face, but only the back of his head, minding the tiller. I've seen this before. Why is it so much easier for women to know where to look, where to keep their eyes? moving through their lives with their eyes fastened to the sides on the eyes of those who travel with them, their men more intent on destination, the negotiation of the journey. How do women keep that look in their eyes as they search up into the profiles of their men? Last Wednesday night, we got a video of scientists trying to teach human language to apes and dolphins. You thought it would be great to watch the dolphins you saw in the pictures on the box but we're bored, as I knew you'd be when I tried to talk you out of it. Even so, a segment stays in my mind. One man, a very famous scientist, spent three years raising an infant chimp and trying to teach him sign language. He named the chimp Nim. Nim did very well, learned several hundred signs. But funding ran out, the project was disbanded, and Nim went to a zoo or something like it. After reviewing hundreds of videotapes of his sessions with Nim, the scientist concluded that Nim was only imitating his teachers and hadn't really learned anything. Put a big dent in the chimp teaching business for a while. Several years later, the scientist went to see Nim, hadn't seen him since the funding ran out on the project. In a clinical voiceover, he wondered if Nim would remember him. The video camera caught Nim walking with the trainer just as he caught sight of the scientist. Immediately, chimp screeches filled the TV speaker at the rate of about three per second as Nim threw up his arms and sprinted, as well as chimps can in their loping way, for the scientist who got down on his haunches and braced for impact. Nim leapt into the scientist's lap and threw his arms around his neck. Chimp arms being what they are, they almost went around twice. All this time, and for as long as the camera held on Nim and the scientist, chimp screeches never stopped or even slowed down. Chimp teeth big and bright as the scene cut. 
And I kept hearing those screeches. And I laughed and smiled and my eyes stung a little all at the same time. Because the scientist thought that Nim learned nothing. And Nim thought that the scientist was his father. Or his brother, at least. Because the scientist was looking ahead at where he was going. And Nim was looking at him. I'd rather be a chimp than a scientist. I'd rather be a young woman watching her man's profile than a young man watching the road. Let's pray. Father, you love us like that. You love us like Nim. You sprint to us. You don't worry about being dignified. You sprint to us even when we don't deserve to be connected to you. And you throw your arms around us so that they go around twice. And you cover us with kisses. And you never let go. Help us to understand how deep this goes. If we, just for a moment, can understand how we're loved, we can let go of the fear that keeps us defended, keeps our walls up, keeps us separate from each other. We want to be loved so badly. Help us to stop doing the things that keep us from the realization that we already are. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for everything that you've given us to see exactly what that means. Help us more and more to break through the fear so that we can break through the boundaries so that we can touch the person that we never thought we would and see where that leads. Thank you for loving us. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.